Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Maybe see. Well, prior to last Sunday's Christmas message, we spent four weeks looking at Ezra 9, Daniel's chapter 3, 4, or 3, 6, 4, and then two weeks looking at Revelation three fourteen to 22, relating these to the state of our nation and the state of the church today. And I don't know about you, but these studies have been a sobering reminder of the desperate, critical condition our nation and the church are in. And so the question is, how are we as Christians to respond? You know, what are we supposed to do? Well, let me tell you what we're not supposed to do. We're not supposed to live in a state of worry and fear. Of all people, we as Christians are not to live in fear. I mean, if God is for us, who can be against us? What can separate us from the love of God? Well, the answer is nothing. And for us to live as Christ and to die as gain. I mean, we're not to be foolish, careless, or reckless. Rather, we're to be wise and careful and, and prudent using the sanctified common sense that God has given us. But we must not live in fear. We're also not to bury our heads in the sand and hope it goes away and things somehow just get better. We're also not to use the sovereignty of God as an excuse for passivity or inactivity. You know, ours is not to be the attitude of, well, you know, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Oh, well, I'm going to heaven. That should not be our attitude. Rather, our hearts should be broken over the state of the nation and the church. Our hearts should be broken over the multitudes that are on their way to an eternal hell. People all around us, friends, family, neighbors, so what do we do? Well, we're not to be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, we're to let our requests be made known to God so that the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds, right? I mean, we're to get up every single morning, put on the whole armor of God, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and then we pray, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end, Paul says, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The trials, tribulations, agonies, and uncertainties of life, the chaos, turmoil, violence, wickedness, and darkness of the world around us should absolutely cause us to pray and to lay hold of the power of God, crying out to Him in prayer. And with that in mind, turn in your Bibles this morning to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, uh, contain uh, Daniel's intercession for his people, and it's one of the most remarkable prayers in the whole Bible. It's an excellent pattern for believers today as we come before God's throne of grace. It's a model prayer for how we as believers should pray for our nation, but even more, it's, it's a model for how we should pray for an apathetic, indifferent, rebellious church. And this prayer shows Daniel confessing and, and interceding for God's sinful people. And the brokenness and humility of Daniel as he prays for all Israel is absolutely amazing. Yet we shouldn't be surprised. As Spurgeon said, a true-hearted believer does not live for himself. Where there is abundance of grace, 
a great strength of mind in the service of God, there is sure to be a spirit of unselfishness. Daniel's prayer should, by the blessing of God's Spirit, inspire us with the spirit of prayer. And his example in forgetting himself and remembering his people should help us to be unselfish and lead us to care for our people, even God's people to whom we have the honor and privilege to belong. So this morning, we're going to look at the prayer of Daniel in Daniel chapter 19. And, uh, you know, most of the prayers of Scripture follow the pattern described in the acrostic acts, A-C-T-S. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, based on truth from Scripture, and supplication. And the prayer of Daniel is, is no different. In verses 1 to 3, we have the circumstances of Daniel's prayer. And then after a brief introduction to the prayer itself, in verse 4, we see the adoration of the Lord in the rest of verse 4. That is followed then by confession of personal and national sin. We also see an element of thanksgiving scattered throughout his prayer. And then it concludes with Daniel's petition or his supplication in verses 16 to 19. So let's look at verses 1 to 3 and and learn of the circumstances of this prayer. In verse 1, we learn the time of his prayer. We read, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. So we learn from Daniel the events of this chapter occurred during the first year of Darius, or Darius. And the year would have been 538, 539 B.C., so this means that Belshazzar was dead, the Babylonian Empire had ended, and the Medo-Persian Empire had taken its place. The fall of Babylon and a new government meant the people were in an unsettled state. And so the events of this chapter occurred at a critical time of upheaval and change and confusion. And in verse 2, we see the reason for the prayer. During this unsettled, confusing time, Daniel was studying the Scriptures as he was accustomed to doing. And he says in verse 2, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So during the first year of the new regime, Daniel was reading what the Lord had revealed concerning the end of the Jews' Babylonian captivity according to Jeremiah the prophet, probably Jeremiah 25 and and 29. Jeremiah had warned the Jews for years that God's judgment was coming in the form of Babylonian captivity. And when it came, the false prophets tried to assure the people that it was only going to be for a short time. But Jeremiah warned that the length of their captivity would be 70 years. And at the end of the 70 years, two things would happen. First, the Babylonians would be punished for their severity toward the Jews. And secondly, the Jews would return to Israel where they would rebuild the temple. Here in chapter 9, in the first year of Darius, Daniel read and understood that Israel's captivity in Babylon would last 70 years and then be followed by the restoration of the people to the city of Jerusalem. Babylon had been judged. The Babylonian kingdom had ended. And so Daniel knew the time for the restoration of the Jews was drawing near. And so what did he do? Well, as Daniel read and meditated upon the Scriptures, and he realized that a great prophecy affecting his people was about to be fulfilled, He didn't go sit on top of the house and wait for it to be fulfilled. Rather, he began to pray. You see, when a man of God believes the promises of God, his faith is not passive because faith always tends to draw the believer to God in prayer. What Daniel read in the Scriptures set him to praying, you know, pleading the promises of God. You see, he knew the Lord, and there in verse 2, it's, it's Yahweh. He knew the Lord. Yahweh is a covenant God who keeps his word. Daniel knew what Scripture says is what God says, and what God says happens. He knew when God makes a promise in his word, it will come to pass just as he says it will. 
So even though he was exiled, a captive in a godless land, and really fastly approaching the end of his life because he was in his 80s at this point, Daniel still had a great hope for his people in light of the sure and certain promises of God's Word. And it was confidence in the promises of God that drove Daniel to action and to his knees. And he began to pray for the restoration of the nation of Israel. He prayed for the very thing the Bible assured him would happen. And this is important for us today. Because there are some misguided Christians who would say in this situation that since God had decreed that at the end of the captivity the Jews would return to Jerusalem, well, there was nothing that they could do except sit back and let God work. No need for them to to pray. No need for them to do anything. It was a done deal. Well, Daniel knew better than that. Daniel knew that God's promises invite our prayers and participation. They don't exclude our prayers and participation. Daniel knew that although God certainly works according to his own plans and timetable, he nevertheless does so through people, through their acts and particularly their prayers. That is why one man said, nothing therefore can be better for us than to ask for what God has promised. I mean, the knowledge of God's promises should cause us to pray, not, not cause us to become detached from God's actions. I mean, believers do not show their spirituality when they abstain from prayer, letting God do what God will do. Rather, what they reveal is their carnality. Daniel's knowledge of God and his knowledge of God's Word and his, confident in the prom- his confidence in the promises of God didn't move him to complacency or inactivity. Rather, it drove him to action to his knees in prayer. As one man said, immersion in Scripture will energize prayer. And it's only as we deepen our understanding of God as revealed in His Word that our praying will become richer and more soundly based on who God is. So we should all ask ourselves this morning, do I struggle to pray as I ought because I don't know the Word of God as I should? Do I struggle to pray as I ought, because I do not know the Word of God as I should. In verse 3, we see Daniel's attitude in prayer. He says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I set my face, literally reads, I gave my face. And it, 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 it implies determination in prayer. Daniel's prayer didn't consist of a few insincere words muttered right before falling asleep at night. No, he prayed fervently to the Lord with a determined heart because he was convinced that his prayer was in the will of God and was not motivated by any selfish desire. And so with deep confidence and earnestness, Daniel looked to the Lord to, to request by prayer and to make a request by prayer and please. And he approached the Lord with a humble and contrite attitude demonstrated by fasting sackcloth and ashes. And one commentator uh, provides a nice explanation when he writes, Fasting is the withholding of food from the body for the sake of prioritizing something else, such as prayer. Sackcloth was a rough material, most likely made from animal skins. It would have been an irritant to the skin and was a mark of repentance. Ashes symbolize complete ruin. In other words, he says, the posture Daniel took was one of visible lament. And so the humility of Daniel is seen externally in the sackcloth and fasting. And the attitude of humility is necessary in prayer, though the sackcloth and fasting are not required. I mean, both of these are external acts, which in the Old Testament times were outward signs of a heart that was grieving over sin. 
And Daniel's attitude teaches us that, that we should come into the presence of the Lord with earnestness and fervency, but also with great humility, realizing that he is sovereign and holy, and we are not. We are sinful. I mean, it's unconscionable that we should ever think to burst into God's presence in arrogance or pride. I mean, we are able to come boldly to the throne of grace. That doesn't mean brashly. That means we can come unafraid without being turned away. You see, when we know our sins and the sins of our people, we will approach God on our knees and with our faces to the ground. I mean, only then can we turn our faces to the Lord with our prayers and pleas. I mean, only then can we rightly pour out our hearts and souls to the Lord our God. I think we become just a little bit too familiar uh, with God in our prayers. Yes, he is our heavenly father. Abba, we have an intimate relationship with him, but he is still the holy, sovereign God of the universe. And we are to reverence him. Daniel humbled himself to pray. And he began his prayer with adoration. Verses 4 to 19, we we have Daniel's prayer now. If you'll notice verse 4, He just kind of introduces his prayer by saying, I prayed to the Lord, to Yahweh, or Jehovah, my God, and and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So Daniel addressed his prayer to the Lord, uh, the Hebrew word Yahweh, the name of the gracious covenant-keeping God of Israel. And Daniel addressed him as my God. When he was a child of God, and so he he could address him as my God. That's that's the basis upon which he was able to approach the Lord with his request. I prayed, he said, to the Lord, my God. My God. This This is personal. And this is intimate. And even though the main portion of his prayer is confession of sin and petition, Daniel begins with a little piece of adoration. And of course, to adore someone is to love them deeply. It's to treasure and and reverence them, to worship them, to magnify them, to extol them, to to cherish them. And this is what Daniel expresses in verse 4, adoration. Daniel loved and worshipped the Lord because, first of all, verse 4 He is a great and awesome or fearful God. And God is worthy of praise because of who and and what he is. And Daniel understood that. He understood who it was he was speaking to. Secondly, Daniel worshiped and adored the Lord because he keeps his promises. He says in verse 4, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. In other words, Lord, you always do the things that you've said concerning your people. God, I love and adore you because you always keep your promises. Your love never ends. Thirdly, he adores God because he is a righteous God who demands love and obedience. Look again at verse 4. O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and those who keep his commandments. Daniel praised and adored his great God because he is both fearful and faithful. He keeps covenant. He is is both great and awesome, both one who makes us tremble and one who keeps us secure. Daniel teaches us how to adore and to rejoice over God, to do so briefly but genuinely. And this is something we can do in our prayers in spite of circumstances or feelings simply because God is is who or what he is and, and that doesn't change despite the mess that you or I are in. Listen, when we begin our prayers with adoration, it, it reminds us of God's power and his majesty. And it has a way of clearing our minds of our doubts and fears because we begin to see how great and awesome God really is. 
Daniel began his prayer with adoration, and in doing so, he manifested two things. Number one, he manifested a God-centered perspective, not a man-centered perspective. This is not I, me, me, and mine. Daniel's world began with God, not with Daniel. As one man said, we will never know what it is to really pray as long as my world begins with me. Because as long as I live as if I'm the champion of my world, the author of my destiny, in charge of my future, then why would I need to talk to anyone else? If I've got it all figured out, why would I need to get down on my knees and talk to someone I can't even see? But when I understand the nature of God's revelation to me and realize how finite I am and how hopeless I am in myself, it drives me to my knees. We need a God-centered perspective in our praying, in our lives, in our marriages, and in our church. Second, Daniel's adoration manifested a God-centered trust. You know, the psalmist said, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The way we manifest our trust is in our prayer life. You know, we could spend time with each other and and we would be able to tell who we trust in by the way we come or fail to come to God in prayer. You know, we can say we trust God, but do we turn to Him first? Or do we first look to ourselves and, and or others and then ask God later, usually last? Daniel first turned to God, and by coming to God in adoration, he manifested his submission to the mind and the will of God because he realized that God's mind and thoughts were much greater than his own. Daniel realized the greatness and and the faithfulness of God, and because God is so great, he should be feared by Israel. Because he faithfully keeps his covenants and steadfast love, there there was hope for Israel if they would repent and love God. And so Daniel begins his prayer where we all should begin with adoration, recognizing the greatness and the goodness of God. And at the beginning of our prayers, we should stop to consider who it is we're speaking to, recognizing the greatness and the goodness of God. And now beginning in verse 5 through verse 14, We have Daniel's confession. In fact, confession is the bulk of his prayer. And we will notice throughout his confession that although Daniel had not been a part of the rebellious majority who had brought the wrath of God upon the nation, he nonetheless identified himself with sinful Israel. Look at verses 5 and 6. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Daniel did not just confess the people's sins and make apologies for the sins of others, which is so very easy to do. Rather, he included himself among those who had sinned against the Lord. Daniel put himself on the side of God's rebellious people by using the personal pronouns, we or us or our, and he did so more than 20 times. And remember, this is the man who was thrown into the lion's den by King Darius or Darius for praying at his open window because the other government officials could not find any wrongdoing in Daniel's life, past or present. And yet this godly man says, we have sinned, and we have done wrong. We have acted wickedly and rebelled. We have turned aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. And that's just verses 5 and 6. He goes on to add to those terms, open or public shame, treachery or disloyalty in verse 7, open shame, sinned in verse 8, rebelled, verse 9, not obeyed, verse 10, transgressed or 
broken your law, turned aside, refusing to obey, sinned in verse 11, iniquities, verse 13, not obeyed, verse 14, sin done wickedly, verse 15. Daniel took the role of a prosecuting attorney and he built an irrefutable case against those who were called by God's name. And he included himself. Now certainly not all had turned from the Lord. Uh, The prophets were faithful and others like Daniel and his friends remained faithful to God's word. Nevertheless, the nation as a whole The nation as a whole, our kings, our princes, and our fathers, or our ancestors, and all the people of the land had turned its back on God. Look back at verses 5 and 6. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Loved ones, that confession of sin could be ours. I mean, like us, Daniel lived among a people who were wicked, who had rebelled against the great and awesome God. They had turned away from his commands, ignoring and defying them, just as we have in America. They were guilty of gross immorality, shedding innocent blood, distorting and rejected the truth, just as we are in America. I mean, America was founded on the principles of right and wrong uh, taken from the Word of God. But like Israel, as a nation, we have done outrageous things, and we have rejected God and His Word and refused to turn from our sins. And it's not only the unbelievers in America who have sinned. We are all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. It would have been easy to complain to God about Israel's problems. But Daniel didn't think for a moment that God was too hard on Israel. Oh no. No, he knew God was completely righteous and any failure was on Israel's side. And so instead of complaining, Daniel confessed in verses 7 and 8, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. Daniel knew Israel's sin and shame was not God's fault. God was utterly righteous and blameless. And today we are covered with shame because America, like Israel of old, is a pitiful place, morally speaking. I mean, in our shame, we must confess that God is righteous in His judgments. But you see, we're prone to make excuses for our sin and often even make excuses in our confessions. But not Daniel. Daniel didn't make the slightest excuse for Israel's sin. He knew that any open or any public shame belonged to Israel alone, not to God. And he said in verses 9 and 10, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. In the Hebrew, mercy and forgiveness are plural, and these plurals are intensive, emphasizing God's great and and manifold mercies and his abundant forgiveness. And so even though Israel had rebelled against him, there was still hope because the sovereign Lord is also merciful and, and forgiving. And the fact of the matter is, every single person has rebelled against God in varying degrees, so every single person needs His mercy and forgiveness to be made right with God. Daniel now acknowledges that Israel's exile was just and right. Verse 11, 
All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. I mean, Daniel recognized that even in his judgment against Israel, God was totally faithful to his word. He, God had promised them that curses would come upon a disobedient Israel, and they did. And so he says in verse 13, As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. And then notice this. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. I mean, Daniel was grieved over the fact that even though this great disaster, this great calamity had come upon Israel, as it is written, the nation as a whole still had not repented. And then he says, Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with the mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Daniel's confession ends with the indictment. We have not obeyed his voice. We have sinned and done wickedly. Commenting on this, one man said, Daniel seems to be saying that though Israel had gone through the ravages of God's curse, the people remained unchanged, unbroken, unrepentant. Israel has a history of rebellion and idolatry and has suffered God's judgment for it, but it has not driven them to godly grief and genuine repentance. What good will it do to have a people back in the land with still no sense of their sin and no exercise in repentance, who have never been crushed in spirit over their idolatry? But then he said, it is not Israel alone. Humanity in general is averse to admitting sin and guilt. And to that accusation, we must all confess guilty as charged. Daniel didn't hide anything with regard to the evils Israel had done, which caused its activity. He honestly confessed that the nation had sinned, done wickedly, and rebelled against God's authority. And all of this had been caused by Israel's departure from the word of God. That's how it begins. In addition, Israel's leaders, the earlier generation, and the people in general refused to listen to the prophets that God had sent to rebuke the people and warn them of impending judgment if they would not repent. I mean, Daniel made it clear that God was not to blame for Israel's shame. God had acted righteously. It was all the Jews, no matter where they were now located or what their status in life, they were the ones who were to blame. All had rebelled. All had sinned and done wickedly. All had disobeyed the word of God. And Daniel honestly confessed this before the Lord. And loved ones, when we pray... We need to pray with honest confession of our sin. And Christians have a real problem with this. Christians have trouble with this. And the reason Christians today have trouble with this is because we have so tolerated and redefined sin, I mean, so much that consequently there's not a lot of sin that, uh, or there's a lot of sin that is never confessed. And a lot of people don't understand that sin is the one thing that hinders prayer more than anything else. The psalmist wrote, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. I mean, if you want to get right with the Lord, make sure you're confessing your sin. 
I mean, David said in Psalm 32, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David also said in Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. We need to confess our sins to God. Lord, I have sinned. And as we confess our sin, I mean, God promises in his word to forgive us, doesn't he? 1 John 1, 9. And if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it begins with our honest confession of our own sin. And if we look back at verses 5 to 14, we, we very quickly notice that Daniel was specific about sin in his prayer. He named the sin. Lord, we grieved you by our sin of disobedience, by not obeying your word, by our prayerlessness. You see, we need to understand that before God, before God will ever move and bring revival in the life of an individual, a church, and then a nation, there must be honest confession of sin before God. And the challenge, I mean, the challenge in confessional praying is to be honest. The godly Robert Murray McShane said that he recognized that the seeds of every sin known to humanity existed in his heart. He told his congregation that. He told his congregation that every sin that anybody ever committed, he had in his own heart. Now, you wouldn't expect that from a pastor, would you? Well, from an honest one, you would, because it's true. The seeds of every sin is in all of our hearts. I mean, there has never been and never will be a revival among the people of God without the genuine, honest confession of sins. Not generic sins either, not like, oh Lord, we are sinful. But rather, O oh Lord, I confess to you today that I am guilty of unbelief. I don't believe your word, and it's evident in my life, my marriage, my family, my attendance at church, my service, my giving. Lord, I confess to you today that pride fills my heart, and I think more highly of myself than I ought to, and I have a tendency to look down on others. Lord, I confess to you that I am often self-righteous and judgmental. Oh, Lord, I confess to you that it's real easy to become a gossip, and I'm guilty of that. Lord, I confess to you today that I am a busybody and a meddler. Lord, I confess to you today that I am a backbiter, and I have sown strife and discord among the brethren. Lord, I confess to you that I am a grumbler and a complainer and everyone knows it and, and other people are starting to grumble and complain because I'm so good at it. You see, when we begin to name sin and call it for what it is and confess it for what it does, then we are making real spiritual progress. And unless we do that, we're just playing around. We're just deceiving ourselves because God knows that we are sinful. And we know we are sinful. And so we just need to call it what it is and then get down to genuine, honest confession of sin in our praying. You know, one of the primary marks of a Christian is that he or she continually mourns over his or her own sin. One commentator uh, puts it well. He said, What distinguishes us from the world is not that we are less wicked, but that by the grace of God we have learned to see our wickedness for what it is and that we confess our sins. The church is the only body on earth that confesses sin. 
where the confession of sin dies out, the church is no longer the church. You may think that's hyperbole, but he's exactly right. Listen, the Elks Club or the Rotary Club, they don't engage in the confession of sin. The city council doesn't engage in confession of sin. The United Nations doesn't confess its sins, nor do synods and parliaments. Only the church, when it's really the church, confesses its sin. And so Daniel started his prayer with adoration, and secondly, there was confession of sin because he knew that sin must be faced and confessed. There's also an element of thanksgiving in Daniel's prayer. In verses 11 to 13, Daniel was saying, Lord, you were right. You know, we were unfaithful and disobedient, and you said if, if we were, you would bring upon us great calamity. Lord, you did that. You know, you confirmed your word by bringing great disaster upon us. And he was acknowledging that, that God was right in punishing them. He was, uh, in essence, giving thanks to God for doing so because it proved that God was faithful to do what he said. You know, thank you, Lord, for being faithful. Thank you that you have kept your word. God had been faithful. He had afflicted on unfaithful Israel precisely what he said he would. And you know, we forget this. We sing, great is thy faithfulness, and we forget that there can be a very painful side to God's faithfulness. But because of God's faithfulness, Daniel could also be thankful for what he knew that God was going to do, namely, bring the 70 years of captivity to an end and restore them to the land. You know, thank you, Lord, you were right in punishing us. Thank you for what you said through the prophet Jeremiah. Thank you, Lord, for your promises and your word. Thank you for the hope we have in you. Thank you that you have laid out the path of obedience on which we're to walk, and if we do, we can be assured of your blessing. Thank you, Lord, you're, you're going to gather your people back to Jerusalem, the place that you have chosen as a dwelling place for your name. Thank you, Lord. You know, thank you, Lord, that you're a great and an awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love you and keep your commandments. Thank you, Lord, that to you belong mercy and forgiveness. Thank you, O Lord, our God, because you brought your people out of the land of Egypt and you've made a name for yourself. Thank you, Lord, for loving your people. Yes, we've done wrong. We've sinned against you. But God, I, I know you. You've redeemed your people once by, by bringing them out of Egypt. And I know that you're going to do it again because that's what your word says. And once you begin to thank the Lord for what he's done, and once you uh, thank the Lord for what he's done and, and for what you know he's going to do based upon what he has said in his word, then listen, it just goes on and on and on. We can never run out of things to thank God for. But the question is, do we thank Him? You know, so often in our prayers, uh, we're in such a hurry, and it's so me-centered that there, there's no recognizing of who it is we're speaking to, no adoration, no confession. We just go straight to the shopping list. And I think that there are times when, uh, you know, there's a, a critical, desperate situation where certainly uh, that is acceptable. But other times, uh, you know, God understands because he knows we're sinful, but I don't believe he likes it. Because he likes to hear the love and adoration and the thankfulness of his children. So the question is, do we thank him? Do we thank him like Daniel did for keeping his word and for doing what he said? Do we thank him for what he's going to do based upon his word? Do we thank him for his divine enabling, his strength and power in our lives, his gracious provision and protection? I mean, how often do we thank God for the simple things that we so often take for granted? How often do we thank him for life, for our health, our job, the ability to earn an income? And we so often take these and, and many, many other things for granted.
I think we're seriously lacking in the area of thanksgiving and our praying. And so the question for all of us this morning is, how much thanksgiving is there in our praying? I mean, God wants our undivided love, our worship, our adoration, and thanksgiving. And there are three things that God expects to be true of all of us individually, and therefore it should also be true of us as a church. And we read about them in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. So I can tell you for absolute certain what God's will for you uh, for God's will for your life is in, 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 this, uh, in this area. You are to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. That is God's will for you and for me and for every other believer. We should be joyful, prayerful, and thankful so that when people come to our church, it's a joyful experience, it's a prayerful experience, and they are caught up in the thankfulness of the people around them. Daniel's prayer consists of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and next in verses 16 to 19, we have Daniel's pleas or his supplication. You know, in a prayer that is clearly God-centered, but people-oriented, Daniel appealed to the great and awesome God who keeps his gracious covenant to act for the sake of his own name and character. He said in verses in verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. And the point is that justice had been served. Israel had been punished for their sins, and now it would be right, it would be just for God to restore the nation. And because of sin, both Jerusalem and the Jewish people had become a byword. That is, they had become an object of scorn to all the surrounding nations. And because Jerusalem had been destroyed and the Jews had been scattered, other nations looked down on them as an insignificant people. But what is even worse, they looked down on their God. In verse 17, he says, Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. The Hebrew word please conveys the idea of a servant earnestly, uh, earnestly requesting, earnestly pleading with his king to meet particular needs. I mean, Daniel is, in, is imploring the Lord to hear his request and to fulfill them according to the promises in Scripture. Oh, Lord, he says, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. I mean, Daniel was asking that the temple be rebuilt for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. I mean, not only was the destroyed temple a disgrace for God's people, but it was a disgrace for God himself. The nations would think that Israel's God was weak and, and insignificant if he was unable to protect his own sanctuary. Verse 18. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. We do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness but because of your great mercy. Now Daniel passionately pleaded with God to incline your ear or literally turn or, or bend your ear and, and hear you know, my request, he says. And the picture there is of a person you know, bending the ear in order to hear more clearly. And Daniel was asking God to listen intently to his prayer, and he was asking God to open his eyes and to observe the plight of, of the Jewish people and the condition of Jerusalem. And his pleas were not based on the fact that the Jewish people were righteous, because they were not. Rather, the answer to this prayer depended solely on the Lord's great or his abundant mercy. 
Lord, we're not presenting, he says, our pleas because of our righteousness. Rather, because of your great mercy. Verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. And God is addressed as, O Lord, three times in this verse, emphasizing his sovereign power and ability to answer this prayer. Daniel pleaded with the Lord to hear, forgive, listen, and act. I mean, God was being asked to direct his attention to the Jews' situation and and to do something about it and to do it quickly without delay because God's own reputation was at stake. And every day that Jerusalem lay in ruins and, and the Jewish people were in exile brought more shame to Israel's God. And therefore Daniel reminded him again that your city and, and your people are called by your name. And therefore, God, it's your reputation that's on the line. And the driving passion The driving passion in Daniel's supplication was the glory of God. When he called on the Lord to restore Israel and Jerusalem for his own sake, to restore his reputation and name. I mean, Daniel's whole heart went out in pleas for the honor and the glory of God's name in the earth. You see, genuine believers always have this concern close to their hearts. You know, there is a tendency today in in Christian circles, uh, some more than others, obviously, of of thinking of God as being there for me. And the fact is, we are here for Him. All of creation, all mankind are all here for His glory. I mean, Daniel's requests were not for God to act in the way that would best meet man's needs as perceived by man, but rather for God to act in a way that would bring himself glory and honor. And I wonder if we ever think of that in in our praying. You know, in making our requests of God, do we ever consider his glory and his honor? I mean, Daniel teaches us that God's name, his reputation, his glory should be the driving concern for our prayers. You know, as one man said, our petition should be sprinkled with the incense of pleading his honor. You know, what glory it will bring you, Lord, if my child is converted. Father, what praise will come to Christ if this marriage is renewed? Father, what what credit and glory to Jesus' name if if that saint can walk through this hard trouble growing stronger and, and stronger in faith? Father, what glory will bring you if the church in this country is revived? Father, what honor and praise will come to you if there's a great spiritual awakening across this land. Lord, do this thing for for your sake, for Jesus' sake. Do it, Lord, we pray, for the glory and the honor of your name and your word and your Son. The highest purpose of prayer is that God might be glorified. And his glory outweighs every other conceivable argument or benefit that might appeal to man, and no prayer can ever aspire to anything greater. Our maturing in prayer is seen when we are more concerned about God's glory in our prayers than the comfort of the creatures. So when it came to his supplication, the ultimate purpose of Daniel's prayer was the glory of God. That was the most important thing to him, the glory of God. And so his prayer began with adoration, recognizing the greatness and the goodness of God. 
The next was confession of sin because he knew that sin had to be faced and confessed. Then there was an element of thanksgiving in Daniel's prayer, thanking the Lord for who he is and for his faithfulness and for what he had done and for what he was going to do. And he ended his prayer making specific requests on behalf of others, but it was for the glory and the honor of God. Did God answer Daniel's prayer? Yes, he did. A year later, Cyrus issued a decree giving Ezra and the Jewish captives the right to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. God answers prayer. But he does so in his time and according to his plan and purpose, not ours. And I wonder what God would do today in response to the humble, united prayers of his people across this land. You know, prayers of adoration, confession of personal and national sins, a a turning from sin to a wholehearted devotion to God and his word, pleading for him to intervene in this nation by bringing about another great spiritual awakening. We have yet to see. For now... Our nation is headed for judgment. The church is languishing in apathy, indifference, lukewarmness, and prayerlessness. But having said all of that, I want to encourage you that we must not lose heart. Rather, like Daniel, we must cry out, Lord, hear, forgive. Listen and act. Lord, don't delay. Not for our sake. Because we're undeserving. Lord, do it for your own sake. Do it because it will bring glory to your name and to show the nations just who you are and what you are like. Prayer makes a difference. It certainly does. But we have to pray. And we should pray correctly. It's grievous to hear someone who professes to have been a believer for umpteen years and they really don't even know how to pray. And I'm not talking about being eloquent. Prayers do not have to be eloquent. In fact, so many eloquent prayers, I mean, that's all they are. They're for the benefit of others. They're like the Pharisee who the Bible says prayed to himself. We have to pray. We have to pray for prayer to make a difference. We have to cry out to the Lord, O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear Lord, please act. Please act according to your word, according to who you are and for your glory. And then we prepare to watch the hand of our sovereign God at work in our world, trusting that he is going to bring about his plan and his purpose in his time for his glory. Amen? I mean, God has an amazing way of answering the prayers of his people. And you know, we know that intellectually, but we're always so surprised when he does, aren't we? Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief, right? We need to pray, right? Pray without ceasing, constantly making intercession for all the saints. Let's stand and pray.
On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. Grow.